morning. Great to see you. My name is Matt. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, we are going to be turning our attention to uh, the Word of God. Um, as we do that, or sort of before we do that, though, I want to give you a bit of a, a heads up about uh, our sermon this morning. We've been in the book of Luke for a while through our summer series, and normally we just kind of go one passage after the other, and we are in Luke 17, uh, but this morning we are, we are not going to hit the next passage in Luke 17. We're going to go back to a verse uh, that we skipped a few weeks ago, uh, Luke 16, verse 18. Just one verse, uh, and this verse is all about a divorce and remarriage. So I decided to just do this one verse on its own so that we would have an opportunity to delve more deeply, more fully into these topics from a biblical point of view. Uh, so before we get to it, a couple of, couple of notes. Uh, I want to acknowledge that um, we all are probably impacted by divorce on some level, uh, but of course some of us are going to feel that more than others. Uh, the point of this sermon is not to bring any judgment or make people feel judged about that. The point is to help us see clearly what the Bible actually teaches about, about divorce, about marriage, so that we can experience greater hopefulness, greater joy, greater satisfaction uh, in our relationships with each other, relationships with God. Uh, one other note before we begin is this. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about marriage, and that's, that's a good thing, but it also has a very, very high view of singleness. In fact, some of the verses, it seems like singleness is, is higher, at least in, in Paul's eyes. So, uh, we're going to talk a lot about marriage today because that's the topic at hand, but let's be careful uh, not to make marriage and family a necessary part of faithfulness as a Christian, okay? Uh, let's be careful not to be one of those annoying churches where every single person is asked frequently, when are you going to settle down? When are you going to get married? When you have kids? Let me just give you a tip. Uh, you'll know because they'll have a ring on their finger, okay, or they'll be getting larger. So you don't need to keep asking that. It's, it can be rude. So... Those are the two notes that we have to make before we begin, uh, and here's our plan. It's simple. We're going to look at what the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage, and then we're going to ask some clarifying questions. But before we do that, uh, we're going to pray. So let's pray together. Lord God, thank you that you've given us your word. Uh, thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have everything that we need uh, right here in our hands by your grace uh, because of your love for us as human beings, as your church, you've, you've given us instructions for every aspect of life. And so I pray, as we turn our attention to it, that uh, we would be ready to receive what you have for us this morning. Uh, I do pray, Lord, uh, for those uh, for whom this is a difficult topic. I pray, Lord, that you would, you would bring comfort. Lord, you would, you would help us to know that everything that is said here is said in love and for our good. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would be uh, humble, Lord, that we would really be shaped and moved by your spirit and by your word this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so big thing we're doing, we're going to see what the Bible teaches uh, about marriage and divorce, and there are going to be three things, three things. But first, I want to look at that verse that we skipped, kind of as an entry into it. So what the Bible teaches about marriage and divorce Luke 16, 18, Jesus is speaking, and he says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who is a marries uh, a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, the immediate context here is not actually about family matters. It's actually about the law of God. 
In this situation here, he's speaking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they, they tended to bend or kind of reshape many of the Old Testament laws to suit their purposes, including the ones about marriage. So here Jesus is giving them an example. What, what they had done is they had taken the instructions about divorce from the Old Testament and they had lightened them to make divorce something that was very easy. In fact, uh, at that time, you could get a divorce for many self-serving reasons, especially if you were a man. Uh, for example, Rabbi Hillel at the time taught that a man could divorce his wife uh, for ruining his dinner. Rabbi Akba uh, permitted divorce if a husband found a prettier woman. And what Jesus is saying here in Luke is, is look, stop trying to bend the law. Stop, stop trying to change the law to suit your own needs. Divorce is not an easy option, an easy out when you're unhappy or when you just want to find someone better. That God never intended. Marriage to be a temporary or trivial thing. The, the thing that's implied here by Jesus' words is marriage is supposed to be for life. So that's going to be our, our first thing. Three points about what the Bible teaches. Here's the first one. God designed marriage to be for life. That's his intention. That's his heart. That's his command. Every, every marriage, every culture, every time period, all over the world, marriage was always meant to be for life. Divorce was never part of God's intentions for marriage at all. Now you might say, but Matt, there, there are some things in the Bible about divorce. Yes, that's true. We're going to get there. But we'll never understand what God is saying about divorce until we understand what he says about marriage. And that's, that's how Jesus handles this topic. Uh, the key text really is Matthew 19. So we're going to spend some time there. In Matthew 19, he's speaking with the Pharisees again. Uh, they come up to it. Here's how it begins. Matthew 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him, to Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful? to divorce one's wife for any cause. So they're asking the question that, you know, most people want answered. What, okay, what are the limits to this whole marriage thing from God's point of view? What are, the, what are the ways out if things get tough? So here's how he responds. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So notice, they ask about divorce, and Jesus answers about marriage. And he basically says, Look, if you really understood God's intentions for marriage, like what it was from the beginning, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be thinking about divorce. And notice, he doesn't appeal to to any cultural traditions or, or practices. He goes all the way back to the beginning. He quotes Genesis, where we see the very, the institution of the first marriage. Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. And we see there with clarity what, what marriage actually is, what it was designed for. We see it's the union of, of two separate people into one entity. We see it's the leaving of our family of origin to create a new family. And the instructions are pretty straightforward. Hold fast to one another for life. That is what God intended when he created this thing called marriage. So marriage, uh, what we should glean from this, marriage is not a contract. It's not just an agreement that we are entering into. It's a covenant. And there's a big difference between these two things. Uh, contracts are, are agreements without clauses. I agree to do this. If you agree to do that, if you don't do that, then I'd, I don't have to do this anymore. Contracts are 
are broken and dissolved all the time because one party doesn't fulfill their part of the bargain and then it's, it's, it's done. But covenants are different. A covenant is a promise to do a certain thing regardless of what the other person does. And it's uh, described or sort of defined in Galatians. Uh, chapter 3, verse 15, Paul writes, To give a human example, brothers, even with, man, uh, with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So there's covenant all over the Bible. Our God is a covenantal God. If you're a Christian, you are a covenantal people. That's, that's who we are. All the promises of God to us, through, through Noah, through Abraham, through Moses, even through Jesus... Right? These are covenantal promises. He, he's promising us as his people, look, I'm going to be faithful to you even if you're not faithful to me. Which is such a wondrous and amazing thing for us because we, we are not faithful and yet he loves us. This is the basis for marriage. It's the commitment to be together through thick and thin regardless of how the other person behaves. Right? You can still see this in the vows that we use today. We hear it all the time. I, Frank, take you, Sheila, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death to us part according to God's holy will. Anytime we go to a wedding, usually Christian or not, these vows, these kinds of words are said. And this is in keeping with the overwhelming and consistent teaching of the Bible, that marriage is about much more than just two people deciding to live together, deciding to align their lives, try to make each other happy. It's two people who are pledging to, to love each other regardless of how the other person behaves. And in case we, we aren't really clear about what that means, uh, in the book of Ephesians, Paul gives us a picture. He says, you want to know what marriage is about? Here is what it's about. And he points not to like a contract or some agreement, he points to the covenantal love of God in the gospel of Jesus. Here's Ephesians 5.31. Paul writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, so, so marriage, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Christ dying for the church. Christ serving the church. Christ humbling himself for the church. That's what marriage is about. But of course, the Pharisees, they weren't really thinking about any of that. Like many of us, they were, they were focused on the exceptions. They were asking, yeah, but hasn't, hasn't God included um, some escape portals, uh, escape hatches, something to get out of this if things go wrong? I mean, things are going to go wrong, right? This is, this is after the garden, there's sin in the world. Isn't that what divorce is? When we aren't happy, there's, there's always a way out. But again, if we look back to the response that Jesus has already given, he's saying, look, if you truly understand God's intentions for marriage, you wouldn't be asking the question that way. You're asking me about divorce like marriage is a cancerous tumor that needs to be cut out. And you're asking, where's the scalpel? How much can I cut away? I need healing. How is God going to bring healing in my life? But he's saying that's... That's not the right picture of either of these things. Divorce, uh, I've heard it said, is more like cutting off a limb, okay, an arm or a leg. It's never a small thing. Even if the limb is infected and it needs to be cut off, it's always major life-threatening surgery that will have lasting effects. 
This is the position that Jesus maintains, even when the Pharisees start pointing back to the Old Testament and saying, yeah, but there was, there was divorce back then. Look at, look at verse 7. They said to him, why then, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And, and that is true. It's, it is in the Old Testament. Here's uh, Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, it goes on, but the idea is then, then they are divorced. And so they reasoned, look, Jesus, Moses, Moses commanded divorce in some cases, he said, if, if you find some indecency in your wife, and that can mean a lot of things, so we just want to know, what are the things? How, how wide is this door open to divorce? But Jesus sets the record straight. Verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So he says clearly, look, divorce wasn't part of God's plan from the beginning. It was added later because of your Hard, sinful hearts. God doesn't command divorce, but yes, he has made some allowances because of your sin. So let's look at those allowances. Okay, first thing, God intended marriage to be for life. Second point, there are two allowances for divorce. And the first one, uh, he mentions right away, it's sexual immorality. And we see it in Matthew 19.9. He says next, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So the word there, sexual immorality, is in the Greek uh, the word porneia, where we get uh, the word pornography from. And it basically includes all manner of of sexual activity outside of of a marriage relationship. So Jesus is saying, look, when that happens... It is such a grievous defilement of this one flesh nature that you now have with your, with your spouse that divorce is permissible. That's the exception. Right? If this happens, then the door is open to divorce, which sounds uh, clear enough, but, if, but there are a lot of questions oftentimes that we have. Uh, for example, what, what does sexual immorality include? Like, does it include just pornography? I mean, Jesus said if we... If we commit adultery, uh, we commit adultery if we even lust after a woman. So is that included? Like, is that grounds for divorce? What about just one, one night stand? Is that, is that over the line? What about an emotional affair that, it, that isn't sexual? How do, we, how do we navigate these kinds of things that happen in life? Well, I'll just say uh, that it's difficult, of course, to, to know all the details and respond to every situation. Uh, I would encourage you, if, if you are genuinely wondering about a situation for yourself or someone uh, please come to me, come to one of the elders. That is part of, part of our function in the church is to try to help us walk through these kinds of things biblically. But I, but I want to give a few general parameters just to help guide us. So porn and lustful masturbation, these are sexual sins. These are grounds for divorce, especially when it's unrepentant and when it's ongoing. Uh, our culture tends to treat uh, porn very lightly, even jokingly even seeing it as just a natural part of of adolescence and just your exploration. But what the Bible makes very clear is that if we are engaging in this kind of activity, we're destroying the fabric of our relationship, either our present relationship or our future marriage relationship. Every time we gratify ourselves with another woman in some way, speaking to guys, whether it's actually a woman or a woman on a screen or a fantasy in our head, we're sinning against our wife 
We're sinning against God. We're driving a wedge between us and our spouse. It's sin. And if that's you, I would just implore you to to take it seriously and to get help. We've talked a lot over the years. We We have a men's group that seeks to help men pursue victory in areas of sin and, and lustfulness and pornography. And so you can find that on the website. I encourage you to, to reach out. It is possible uh, to find victory over those things. We want to help support each other in that way and take seriously what the Bible says is, is a serious offense. Now, a wandering eye, I would say, is, is thin grounds for divorce, but all, all lust is sinful and hurtful. And again, speaking to, to men, we need to fill our mind's eye with the woman God has given us. Not to have our head on a swivel every time we walk out the door. It's, it's hurtful, it's rude, and it's undermining the intimacy that God wants to grow between you and your spouse. Now, of course, even one one-night stand is too many, is, is grounds for divorce. And I would say if you've got to that point, chances are you've been unfaithful to your spouse in, in lots of ways already. But what about emotional affairs? You know, when you're just getting close with someone, maybe at work, right? You're, you're, you're opening up your heart to this person. It isn't physical yet, and, and that's, I think, the key. I would say usually emotional affairs are just sexual affairs that haven't happened yet. Uh, there was one couple that uh, Don and I got to know a while back where this had happened. Uh, they hadn't been married that long, but very early on in their, in their marriage, like the first year or two, uh, things got very difficult. He was uh, very focused on his work. He was starting a new business. He was working all the time, was really neglecting his, his new wife, and she began to get close with someone, someone at work. And that closeness led to a relationship with le- which led to an affair, a sexual affair. And she felt just horrible about it, devastated by it. And so she confessed to her, to her husband. Um, they found themselves in much deeper waters than they had anticipated. We found out about this because they came to us for some counsel. Uh, see, after he had found out about the affair, he had made plans to go to Vegas with his friends. Right? In his mind, he's like, I have no obligation to this relationship anymore. He hadn't moved out yet, but he was just like, I'm, I'm going to go and, and get away. But uh, in the time between making the plans for that trip and then going on the trip, it was coming soon, his heart had began to change a little bit, and he was thinking maybe, maybe he would like to make this marriage work. And so we started to see this, this Vegas trip in a new light. Uh, he, he, he was realizing that, you know, he, he had the freedom to go, he thought, but if he went, he was pretty sure that would, that would kill any opportunity for the marriage to continue. And so he came uh, to Don and I, they both came, and wanted to know what we thought he should do about this trip. So Don and I prayed about it for about three seconds, and then <laughs> we said, we know what Jesus wants you to do. Uh, we said, look, look, you're, yes, you have a right to go. Not, not a right to go to Vegas and do all sorts of horrible things, but you have a right to leave this marriage. Yes, you, you, it has been broken. There has been sexual immorality, sexual, sexual immorality adultery. You can go and, and in a sense, go and, and be free. But, but if you do go, you're missing an opportunity to experience real love and real grace. If, if you don't go on this trip, you will be showing your wife the kind of love that God has shown you. Undeserved forgiveness. Undeserved grace. If you do that, the door then is open in your life and in your relationship for God to move in more powerful ways than you could ever dream. So we implored him to really think about it from that point of view. And by the grace of God, he, he didn't go on the trip. They stayed married. They're married to this day. They, they have kids. 
And I think if you went and spoke to them and asked them about marriage, they would have a very deep understanding of what marriage is really about. It's about enduring love. It's about forgiveness and grace, even in the face of things that are grounds for divorce. Now, I want to be careful here. This isn't, this isn't a one-size-fits-all. In this case, uh, she was remorseful. She was repentant. That you could see that. There was evidence of that. But sadly, I've dealt with other situations where the, the one who's in sin is, is talking a lot but not doing a lot. They're not really showing any signs of remorse or any real desire to change. And, and I'd say that's a completely different story. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is, is talking about. It is grounds for divorce biblically. But again, we shouldn't miss the framing of this whole conversation. Okay, the Pharisees were saying that God commands divorce and Jesus is saying, no, it's an allowance. Okay, because of sexual sin, there's an allowance there. It's not a command. It's not a requirement, not even a preference. In fact, if, if you look, you can see really clearly throughout the New Testament that when there's betrayal, when there's sin, when there's an offense, the, the preference of God is that we would, we would seek forgiveness we would offer uh, mercy and reconciliation. So that was the first allowance. The second allowance for divorce is found in 1 Corinthians 7, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, or sometimes desertion by an unbelieving spouse is how it's called. So here Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, writing about a lot of things. One of them is, is family matters. So here's what he says in verse 12. To the rest I say, uh, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So to back up just for a moment, just so we're clear, uh, the Bible says to Christians, you should not marry uh, unbelievers. Okay, if you believe in Jesus, you shouldn't marry someone who doesn't. You're, you'd be unequally yoked. It's wrong to do that. But there are reasons why you might find yourself in that situation. Like maybe you got married, neither of you believed, but then you came to faith. And now you're married to someone who, who doesn't believe. Or you both were believers, someone left the faith in a sense. And you're trying to figure out what you should do. And so Paul says, look, to the Christian, if that's you, remain as you are in the hopes that your presence might make the people in your lives more holy, might, might lead them to faith. So that's what he says to the Christian. But, verse 15, he keeps going, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will see, save your wife? So he says to the Christian, you should not pursue divorce. But if your unbelieving spouse wants to leave, wants a divorce, that's okay. You can agree to it. You are not in sin. Now, again, that seems straightforward, but, if, but there's lots of questions. Life's complicated. So, so what if you're married to someone who claims to be a believer, but they're not acting like a believer and they want a divorce? What if, what if we wrongly divorced when we were believers, husband and wife, and now we're feeling convicted about it? Uh, do we have to get back together? What if we were unbelievers and we got divorced, but now I'm a believer? And, I'm, and should I go pursue my spouse? Uh, there's lots of, lots of different what ifs, but there is a, a pretty clear line in the sand that the Bible gives us to help navigate these kinds of things. Basically what the Bible says is a Christian 
is never free to pursue divorce unless it's an issue of sexual immorality. Okay, whatever the situation. So even if, even if they're married to someone who claims to be a Christian but isn't acting like it, even if they're married to an unbeliever who hates the church, is making it very difficult to practice their faith, the heart of a true Christian should always be to uphold their marriage vows, to trust in God's word, to rely on his spirit. Because like Paul is saying, we, we don't know if our presence in the family as believers might, might increase the, the holiness, might, might save our, our partner or our children. This is, this is part of our family story. Don's parents got married at a young age. Don's mom was at a low point in her faith. Uh, Ron um, didn't have any faith at all. They got married, uh, but Ingrid, Don's mom, she began to come back to the Lord, started going to church. Uh, Ron still wanted nothing to do with church, made, made fun of Christians. Um, she went on her own, brought the kids for, for a long time, for almost a decade. It was like this until, by the grace of God, Ron's heart softened. He came to faith through the prayers of his wife, through her, her faithful testimony. This is what can happen. Now, there are other hypothetical situations that are difficult to make a call on, right? All those different things. But I will say this. When you see marriage from God's point of view, you see that it's, it's worth fighting for. We've even heard stories of, of married couples that have gotten divorced, felt convicted about it, got married again. When we read the text of Scripture, we see that that does seem to be God's heart. For, for marriage and for instances where there is sin, where there's hurt, where there's betrayal, reconciliation and forgiveness are at the heart of the gospel. It should be part of our hearts as believers, as people of faith. In fact, uh, before all of that stuff we read in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says this, to the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So let's talk about remarriage. Okay, here's the third thing. Remarriage is permissible if the divorce was biblical. Okay, there are some that would say that um, divorce is permissible, but you, you can't get remarried. And they point to verses like I just read, 1 Corinthians 7, reconcile or remain unmarried. Uh, Luke 16, 18, the first one we started with, uh, Jesus said, everyone who divorces his wife marries another, commits adultery. So some would say, no, you, you can just never get remarried. But there are two verses that when you put them together, they, they tell a different story or they make clear uh, the intentions uh, of the Bible. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, which we haven't looked at yet, it says this, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So if your spouse dies, you are free to remarry. Don't get any ideas. I'm just saying that's one of the ways that marriages are dissolved, biblically, okay? But that word bound there is, is a synonym. A synonym is found in a verse we already looked at, verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Bound, enslaved, very similar Greek words. And so the, the, the effect is the same. What we're seeing there is, look, if there's death, one partner dies, then the partner is free to be remarried in the Lord. Same thing if there's a biblical divorce, then you're free to be remarried in, in the Lord. But if not, then you should remain single or be reconciled to your spouse at a later date, which is a difficult thing to accept if you're in that situation. 
Because the, the sad reality is that a lot of the time when people are thinking about divorce or going through divorce, they're, they're not really thinking biblically. Uh, there's another couple that we were working with uh, through uh, premarital counseling, and they asked if I, if I would marry them. And as we began to hear their story and get to know them, uh, found out that he had been married uh, earlier. He was very young, like 20, 21 years old. He was a Christian at the time. She was a Christian at the time. They, they got divorced, uh, not because of any sexual sin. They just thought it, it wouldn't work. And now he wanted to marry a, a, new, a new woman. And he was asking if I would do the, the ceremony. And so I had to talk to him. I said, well, you need to, you need to tell me, like, is, is your ex-wife unmarried still? Is she a Christian? If so, then the Bible is clear. You, you should remain single or you should seek reconciliation with your first wife. I, I can't do the wedding, which is, which is a difficult conversation to have. But see, if we, if we actually believe that God's word is true and for our good, then we need to realize that marriage is not, it's not just about us. It's, it's not just about our love, our relationships, our plans for our lives. It's, it's about God. It's about his love, his honor, his word, his glory. And I know that's not what we hear and see in all the romantic comedies that we watch, but but that actually does lead to the, to the greatest joy and satisfaction relationally in our lives with each other and, and with God. So let's ask some questions about this. That, that's, in summary, those three things of what the Bible says about marriage and divorce. Marriage is supposed to be for life. There are two allowances for divorce. You can be remarried if the divorce was biblical. But now some questions. First one, what about abuse? What do we do? How does divorce apply to instances where there is, is a marriage and, and abuse is the issue? And what I would say to you is that in that case, divorce is not the primary issue at hand. Okay, the primary issue at hand, of course, is the safety of the abused spouse. And the church is, is morally and biblically obligated to step in and protect the one who's being abused. There needs to be an immediate and ongoing separation for the safety of the spouse. And the church should be there to support the spouse who's being abused. And by support, I mean practically, I mean financially, emotionally, spiritually. That is one of the functions of an elder team, that, that we would step in in those kind of situations with other help, confront the sin that is going on, bring in the authorities that need to be brought in, police, social services, whatever it is. That separation is essential and loving and necessary. And the effect of that usually goes one of two ways. If the, if the offending spouse is really a Christian, then eventually uh, he or she will be convicted about their sin. They will come to realize their wrongs. Uh, they will be repentant. They will be remorseful. They will seek reconciliation. That, that may take a long time, but if it's going in that direction, that's the best case scenario. Uh, the other option, the other thing that happens is that the offending spouse reveals that they're not really a Christian. And that happens because as the, as the church engages with them, speaks about sin, seeks change, you know, says you need to, you need to go to this uh, anger management, whatever it is, you need to do all of these things. Eventually, the spouse is just like, I'm, I don't want anymore. I'm tired of you being in my life. And they leave usually the church and they leave the marriage. And that is a 1 Corinthians 7 situation where the door is open to divorce. They're, they're leaving. And I've seen both happen in the situations I've been involved in. See, what we need to understand as a church is that we are, we are here first and foremost to care for those who are in those difficult situations. And I would say to you, if, 
if you think that you are in an abusive relationship, if you know who you are, please, please reach out. There are people in the church who've been through that, who would want to walk through that with you. We, as a church leadership, are there to support you. And we want to enter into those, those kinds of situations. Second question. What if there are legitimate hardships in your marriage, but the issues don't fit into either of the two allowances for divorce? So what if there are real like sin going on, real hard things going on, you can, you can fill in compulsive lying, substance abuse, uh, deep-seated pride or neglect, an unwillingness or an inability to connect, a harshness, anger issues, bad with money, lazy, nagging, betrayal, mental health issues, depression, self-absorbed, all of these things that has got you to a place where you feel no love for the other person or no respect for the other person and you have no hope that this is ever going to get better. What, what does the Bible say about that kind of situation? Well, it says this, you, you need to pray, you need to read your Bible, you need to talk to others and get help. You might need to take some, some time of separation for a season, but you, you need to stay married. You need to endure by the grace and by the power of God. And if you are surprised by that, remember, that's what all of us say we are going to do on our wedding day. That, that's what the vows say. We are, I'm going to be with you for better or for worse. Now, I know that's easy to say in theory, but when it's happening, it, it's hard, especially when the worst is going on for, for months and, and for years, and it seems like it will never end. So let me ask another question. The question that I, that I think is the deeper question that we probably all want to know the answer to. Why would God want us to stay in unhappy marriages? Why, why would everyone else around us is saying, if you're unhappy, you need to get out. Why would God want us to stay in unhappy marriages? Does God have a cold heart towards our hardships and our difficulties? Is, is he more concerned with some ancient rules in a book than our happiness and our joy? The answer to that question, just so we're clear, is no. No one is more committed to your happiness and joy than God. No one. No one in this world, no one in this universe is more committed to your joy and satisfaction in life than God. That's why he restricts access to divorce. That's why he emphasizes reconciliation. See, marriages, especially tough marriages, they, they are incredibly effective tools in the hands of God to hone us and shape us to be more godly and content people, even if that isn't a part of our plan at all. And let me, let me illustrate this with a story of a, a couple that, that went through this kind of situation. I heard this story a little while ago about a couple that only got married for reasons of temporary convenience. So Dennis and Joyce met at the Elmendorf Air Force Base in Anchorage, Alaska. They met in 1978, they were both in, in service, military service, and they liked military service, but they hated the accommodations. They were in barracks, it was uncomfortable, it was crowded, the food was horrible. So Dennis realized that married couples could live off base, and they got paid more. So one night, he, he walked around the base, talking to all the women he could find, explaining the situation, and asking if they wanted to get married, so they could go live somewhere else. It was a purely business arrangement, and he finally found Joyce. And Joyce said, that actually sounds like a pretty good idea. So one day on their lunch break, they went to the courthouse. They got married. It was January 19th, 1979. And here's how they described their relationship. They said, the relationship was designed to fail. 
As soon as one of them, it didn't matter which one, received a new duty assignment, the marriage would dissolve, no questions asked. Divorce wasn't part of the plan, it was the entire plan. That, that's what they thought. We'll just do this for now, more money, more comfortable. But things didn't go as planned. They did find accommodations, they did move out, it, it was good, but what happened is they were a legally married couple living in the, under the same roof and one thing led to another and all of a sudden they were in a relationship, which they didn't expect, but at first was actually, they enjoyed it. I mean, they were, they were already married, they were, found themselves on a honeymoon. Expectations were low, enjoyment was high, everything was going great, in fact, it was going so great that... When Dennis did get, uh, they wanted to transfer him, he, he didn't go. He, he left the Air Force, stayed in Alaska with Joyce, and they kept, they kept living together. They kept being married together, and it was all great until, until the first baby came along. And then they were confronted with surprising truth that they were actually a family, and this realization brought different expectations from each of them, harder expectations, heavier expectations, and they weren't meeting each other's expectations. They started to fight a lot. Here's what Joyce said. She said, we argued about everything. About parenting, about the kids, about money, which we didn't have any of. And all the time that we would argue, we would say to each other, especially me, we would say, I don't need you. I'm going to get a divorce like we said we were going to get. This kept going for many years. They had more kids. Eventually, I think about five years in, uh, they decided that Dennis should just leave that it was, it was just over. None of this was part of the plan anyway. So one night, Dennis, he stalked the firewood, the propane. They lived in this little kind of cabin in the woods in, in Alaska. He walked out the door, got into his truck, but he, he couldn't turn the ignition. He just kind of sat there looking at the cabin. See, interestingly, uh, they had become Christians a couple years prior. Mostly, they say, out of desperation. They were just looking for anything that might somehow help them. So they weren't really strong in their faith. But here's, here's what Dennis said. He said, that night, the Lord's presence was undeniable. He said, all I can say for sure is that God impressed upon me the need to go back. So I did. I walked back in the house, and I know the tenor of our conversation uh, changed completely that night. Joyce, for her part, had been so ready for Dennis to leave. She, she wanted him gone, wanted him to walk out the door. But once he walked out the door, she just, she felt this anxiety. She, she wanted him to come back, but, but because of her pride, she didn't go after him. She just sat there weeping and crying. But when he came back through the door, she, this relief flooded her. And, and it changed something inside her. They started talking. And more than that, they started listening to each other. And they both say nothing, nothing miraculous happened that night, but slowly things began to change because they began to change. And, and the two things they decided were we are, we are going to take this Christian life seriously and we are never going to use the word divorce again. And now here's a picture of them. They're in their, I think, late 60s. Uh, they have four children, 19 grandchildren. Okay. So here's my point of this story. Look, hear me. This, this story is not just some couple in some Christian magazine. I mean, it is. I found it there. But what I'm saying is, I'm just, I'm just saying this is, this is a picture of all of the ways that God moves in every marriage. This is the story that he is writing for, for all of us. Every married couple has moments of despair. Don and I have, have had many of them over the years. And sometimes those moments last for a long time. 
But hear me, if the answer to our unhappiness was divorce, we would live in a country filled with people in satisfying relationships, happy, over the moon, and we don't. We don't because unhappiness comes with us when we leave a, a relationship. Because it's, it's never just the other person. It's always us as well. And the beauty of God's design for marriage is that we are forced to see our true nature. All of the things that we're so good at hiding from most people in our lives or denying to ourselves, you can't do that in marriage because it's there. And, and it's impacting the person that we are married to. And they aren't quiet about it. They're telling us about it, which seems just like conflict, but actually it's an opportunity for us to actually change, actually deal with the things that God knows we need to deal with and that we haven't wanted to. We can repent, we can turn away, we, we can find healing. But listen, this only works if marriage is for life. If there are escape hatches in our marriage, we are going to take them too quickly and too frequently for any work to actually be done in our souls. We need to, we need to have the time and the pressure and the commitment so that we're actually forced to deal with the things that are deep inside of us. And this only works if we live in and through the gospel of Jesus. Because that is the pattern of forgiveness. That is the hope that we have in the midst of our sin. That is, that is the power of God. So instead of just looking for a way out, what we should be doing is looking and asking God, what is it that you were trying to do here? In my heart, in the heart of my spouse. What, what is it that you want to accomplish through this difficulty? Now, a couple things as we close. One, we've spoken a lot about marriage, a lot of emphasis on marriage, and that's, that's good and right. That is what the Bible says. But just so we're clear, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Okay, if, if that's part of your past, some of the decisions that you've made, you need to know that there is grace, forgiveness, acceptance by Jesus and by this church. We need to be a place that is warm-hearted towards everyone, not make snap judgments. We don't know the details of the people's lives around us. We need to love people enough to simply enter into their lives and hear their stories and be gracious as God is gracious. And secondly, if you are being squeezed right now, if it is a season of, of the worst part of things that marriage can be, can I just encourage you to please not try to do that on your own? That that's the whole purpose of the church, that we would, we would be there for each other, that we would be able to encourage each other, that we'd be able to support each other. We, we again, have marriage mentors in the church that if you're going through a difficult time, please reach out to someone that you know, community group leader, Bible study leader, Come talk to me, one of the staff. We, we need to be here for each other. It, it is a difficult thing to walk through an entire life together with another sinner, but it can happen by the grace and mercy of God if, if we are there to help each other. So as we close in prayer, I'm gonna ask for God's blessing on our marriages, that we would have eyes to see what God is doing, that there would be fruitfulness in our church in our community because, because of strong marriages by the grace of God. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I do pray for the marriages of our church. I pray, Lord, for those here this morning where it is just, it's a difficult season, where there, there is sin on one side or the other or both. God, I pray that you would help us to see that that is never a question of, of power. Lord, you have the power to change hearts. 
You have the power to raise the dead. It's most often a question of humility on our part and perseverance and that we are actually listening to the voice of your spirit and being obedient to your word. I pray that we would, we would push through the difficult times trusting that, that your plans for marriage are good plans and that you have good intentions for us even, even when it seems hopeless. Lord, you are there. And so I pray for a conviction of sin and for extension of grace. And Lord, that through that, you would, you would build up the relationships within our church. And Lord, that we would grow closer to you and closer to each other. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.